You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to Genesis 41. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, namely with verse 41. We'll read through to the end of the chapter. Genesis 41, beginning with verse 41. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath Paneah, and gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all of the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all of the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities, put in every city the food from the fields around it, And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all of the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all of the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all of the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased this morning, Lord, to teach us, to visit us, O Father, this morning, to visit our hearts and our souls through your word, instructing us, O Father, from your word and opening our hearts to receive that instruction, opening our hearts and minds to receive application. Uh, rending our wills, O Father, to bend to that application. O Father, we pray that you would be pleased, O Lord, to use uh, uh, your word this morning as another installment in making us 
in the likeness of Christ Jesus. So, Lord, we pray these things and we look to you with attended hearts. In Christ's name, amen and amen. There's one thing that so profoundly changes us, changes our hearts and changes our souls, and that is just a glimpse, even if it is a split-second glimpse, but a glimpse of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the game changer. And we might think along those lines. In fact, it wasn't that long ago we were studying this in, on Wednesday nights in our study of the book of Acts, where the Apostle Paul is riding on the Damascus Road and his, uh, he's breathing murderous threats, as the text tells us. And what is he on about? He wants to destroy every Christian that he can find until he sees just a glimpse of Christ. And he is transformed in that moment. I would submit as he fell to the ground, he was transformed before he hit the dirt. Because one glimpse of our Savior is all that that takes, isn't it? And the problem with us is that we can't see him. That's the problem. The sinful heart, unconverted heart, cannot see him. Now, with that in mind, let's take a look at our text this morning. We begin in verse 41, and I think as I look around the room, and perhaps a review might be in order if you didn't hear last week's message or you haven't heard the last couple of uh, messages in Genesis. Uh, Joseph has been in prison, right? And we tried to imagine how long uh, I think it was last week I made the argument that he had to have been in prison at least three years. I think it was last week. Um, because we know that he, from, from the beginning of Genesis 41, we know that, that two years elapsed since the cupbearer was reinstalled in the service of Pharaoh. And prior to those two years, Joseph had been in jail for an undisclosed amount of time, but it was a long enough time that Joseph had earned the trust of the prison keeper. And I'm just, this is just conjecture on my part, but I'm thinking it would take a, perhaps a year. It's a guess. I, I don't think it's going to happen in a week. I don't think it's going to happen in a month. Maybe it was six months. Maybe it was a year. Maybe it was longer. We don't really know. But the point is, I think if we say three years, I think we're on the conservative side. He was there at least three years in that pit. And along comes this baker and this cupbearer. They, they offend Pharaoh and they're thrown in jail. They're thrown in the exact place where Joseph is in charge and Joseph is put in charge of them. And then they're given these dreams and uh, they're distraught. Their spirit is troubled within them because they've had these dreams and they don't know what to make of them. There's no one to interpret them. And Joseph has spent enough time with these guys to realize something's wrong with them. And he says, what's troubling you? And they said, well, we've had these dreams. There's no one to interpret it. And Joseph always an interpretation from God. Tell me the dream. And they tell Joseph their dreams. And Joseph interprets their dreams. He says to the cup bearer, listen, you're going to, in three days, you're going to be back in the service of Pharaoh, the baker, tells his dream, and he says, well, within three days, you're going to be hanged. And it all turns out just the way Joseph said. And you remember Joseph said to the cupbearer, listen, when you're back in the service of Pharaoh, remember me. 
And then we come to the beginning of chapter 41, where it's two years. Uh, Cupbearer, at the end of Genesis 40, we're told the cupbearer forgot all about Joseph. Uh, and then in Genesis 41, at the beginning, now Pharaoh has two dreams, doesn't he? And the dreams so trouble Pharaoh, in the same way that those dreams troubled the baker and the cupbearer, those dreams troubled Pharaoh. And what, is, what does Pharaoh do? He calls in his, his counselors, if you will, his magicians, these professional dream interpreters. He calls them in, and none of them are able to give the, dream, the interpretation of the dream. And then finally, the cupbearer opens and breaks the silence and says, hey, you know, um, when, I was, um, when I was in jail... Uh, me and the baker, we had, we had dreams. And there was this young Hebrew, and he was able to interpret our dreams. And furthermore, the interpretation that he gave, things turned out just the way he said. And that's enough for Pharaoh in verse 14 of our text. Pharaoh orders Joseph to be brought into his presence. And Joseph is literally pulled out of the pit and brought in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams. And what does Joseph say? Joseph said, listen, your dreams are one. Seven years of plenty are coming. Plenty like you've never seen. The land is going to be very fruitful. But following those seven years of prosperity, there's going to be a famine that's going to be so severe that it's going to cause you to forget the prosperity that you enjoyed in the first seven years. And then Joseph, he said, last week I pointed out, he goes a little further in just interpreting the dreams. He actually gives some gives a proposal for Egyptian policy. He says, listen, now, you, you know, select a man and have him, uh, have him oversee this and um, uh, tax all of Egypt uh, 20% and gather uh, one-fifth, if you will, of the produce and store it up in, in each city so that uh, the land will not perish. And, of course, if you look back to verse 37, how does Pharaoh react to this? Verse 37, chapter 41, the proposal pleased Pharaoh. And I pointed out last week that there was two things that Pharaoh noticed about, about Joseph. One, he noticed the Spirit of God. You see that? He noticed the Holy Spirit. Now, mind you, we're in the Old Testament. Just want to remind everybody we're in the Old Testament. He noticed the Holy Spirit. And in verse 39, he notices the wisdom of God. Those are two things that he notices about Joseph. And then in verse 40, he does something that had to have had his counselor's head spinning. He says, you shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Can you imagine the counselors that are standing around listening to this? Y'all got you a new boss. There's a new chain of command here. And then in verse 41, Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Now, what is significant about that? What is significant about that is at this point in time, Egypt is a superpower. It's a world superpower. Pharaoh arguably is one of the most powerful men in the world. And Joseph, where, where was Joseph just, a, I don't know, maybe two hours ago? Where was Joseph? Three hours ago. He was in the pit. And there's a sense, and I want to return to this, but I just let me warm you up. There's a sense in which Joseph was resurrected. 
out of the pit and ascended to the right hand of Pharaoh. Does that make sense? Then in verse 42, Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand. There's that signet ring. Um, we've looked at that before. You remember in that really disturbing chapter, chapter 38, Judah and Tamar. Um, Tamar asks Judah for a pledge, and, and she asks Judah for his signet. You remember that discussion? Uh, in, in the case of Judah, he was wearing it around his neck. Some, some people would wear these signets. They had a cord. they go around their neck so they didn't lose them. But in Pharaoh's case, it was worn on the hand. It was a ring. And if you can imagine a ring, there would be a, a large, probably circular or oblong um, uh, seat on the end of the ring, and then there would be an engraving on the end of that ring, and it would serve as a signature. If uh, in ancient times, if a king drafted a letter, uh, then a piece of wax would be put on the letter, and the king would take his signet ring and push it into the wax and, announce, and, and, and notarize the document, if you will, uh, showing it to be really from the king. Uh, we do this today. Um, notaries do this with their seal. Um, we, we have notaries actually in our presence this morning. We do have a notary, not to draw any attention to anybody that might be in the front row. But um, it's like a, the seal's like a pair of pliers kind of like thing, you know? And it's got this, it's got a, uh, an imprint and many of you have seen that. You stick the paper in it, you squeeze it, and it leaves an imprint. Mom used to be a notary. Uh, and she'd have that, that little pliers-looking thing, and it leaves an imprint in the paper, which authenticates the paper. Now, notice what Pharaoh does here in verse 42. He takes his signature off of his hand, and he puts it, on Joseph's. So what is significant about that is Joseph is not just given a paper title. You know, like you see all over the place. People, they have these titles, but they're just paper titles. It, it means they can sign a paper once in a while. But other than that, what authority do they really have? Zip. It's a paper title. That's not the case right here. Joseph really is in charge. He is at the right hand of Pharaoh. And notice the next thing that Pharaoh does. He clothed him in garments of fine linen. <laughs> Here we are with a garment again. You notice this garment thing keeps coming up? When we, when we meet Joseph, he's wearing a garment of many colors, isn't he? And the garment distinguishes him. This robe of many colors distinguishes him from his brothers, doesn't it? And, of course, the robe gets him in a little bit of trouble. The, the robe is torn off of him. It is torn and uh, blood is put on it. And it's used as false evidence that Joseph has been, has been uh, killed. And then again, um, when Joseph is enslaved to Potiphar, Potiphar's wife proposed, propositions him over and over and over again until finally in frustration she pulls his garment off of him and uses his garment as evidence on a trumped-up rape charge, right? Attempted rape. Here, this is different. Notice what's going on here. He's clothed in garments of fine linen. 
There's no one going to be taking this off of him. How would you go about that? And a gold chain is put about his neck. I don't know if Joseph was shackled with the leg shackles. I'm not sure. Some commentators have suggested that he wore these leg shackles. Maybe he had shackles on his hands. Was he led into Pharaoh's presence shackled? I, I don't know. The text doesn't tell us it's possible. He's a prisoner. Um, it's possible that he, these things were taken off of him. I don't know. But we can say for sure, in a sense, Joseph was chained, wasn't he? While he was in that prison, he is chained within that complex. He is not a free man. Those chains have fallen off, and he is given a gold chain about his neck. No, nothing could be more opposite, could it? And in verse 43, he's given a motorcade. Look at, look at this. He made him ride in his second chariot. In other words, what does Pharaoh do? He gives him his alternate motorcade. Now, they look a little different than modern motorcades, but it's the same thing. You know, when you read antiquity, you see government hasn't changed a whole lot. It really hasn't. In many respects, it's still the, it's still the same. And notice that his motorcade... They would call out before him. People would call out before him and say, what? In verse 43, bow the knee. Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. And then in verse 44, his authority is, is emphasized again. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Here it's, it's emphasized. It's, it's repeated for emphasis. And Pharaoh gives Joseph a new name, kind of like um, it reminds you of Daniel when he's brought into Babylon. Uh, Daniel and his three friends are given, given Babylonian names. And then things get a little messy in verse, in verse 45, don't they? Um, Pharaoh gives to Joseph in marriage Asenath. Now, Asenath, of course, is... Um, a, uh, she is a pagan woman. Um, she's not from the line of Abraham. And to make things even worse, notice that she is the daughter of Potiphar, who is the priest of On. Now, what does that mean? Well, On, known in, in the Greek language as Heliopolis, was a center of worship for the Egyptian god Re, which was the sun god. And it was believed by ancient Egypt that the sun god uh, Re uh, had a son, and his son was Pharaoh himself. In other words, Pharaoh was seen as the son of the sun god Re, and was perceived as a mediator between Re and the people. And here Joseph is given in marriage to the daughter of the priest of On. Now, this wouldn't have been your average garden variety priest here. He would have been a priest of probably the highest rank, if you will. And we look at this and what do we say? What do we do with this? The only thing I can say is this is messy, isn't it? This gets pretty messy right here. 
It reminds me of Esther, if you're familiar with Esther. Esther, what does Esther do in order to save the the Jewish people? What does she do? She marries a pagan king. Now, of course, we don't want to form a theology out of this. This is, this is prescribing what took place. We don't want to form a, a theology of, out of this that would suggest that it's okay for us to run around being unequally yoked. No. Uh, no. Uh, let, let's not go there. But notice how messy it is. And, and Moses, the author of Genesis, really doesn't do a lot to try to clean it up, does he? This is... in. This really is such a testament to the, the, just the authenticity of the Scriptures. Are our lives always black and white? Is everything that we see always just clear-cut, black and white? And if God had given us a book, and in that book it was always just clear, black and white, black and white, black and white, with no shade of gray, Would we get the sense that what we're reading is really an authentic book about life? I don't think so. This is really messy. I'm not going to try to to explain it this morning. I'm not going to try to do that. I just all I'm going to say is this is messy. This gets really messy in verse 45. It's it is what it is. Verse 46. We're told that Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We're told that Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all of the land of Egypt. Notice, this is Joseph being Joseph again, isn't it? You know, Joseph is, what does Joseph do? You know, he's sold into slavery. He goes to work for Potiphar. And what does he do? He labors for the glory of God. So much so that Potiphar, Potiphar notices him and notices him and notices him, makes him his right-hand man, and then he's in charge of all of his house. And then this incident with Potiphar's wife, he finds himself in jail. And what is Joseph doing in jail? Joseph is doing what Joseph does. He gets on with his duties, and then the prison keeper takes notice, and he becomes the prison keeper's right-hand man. And now what is Joseph doing? Now that Pharaoh has made him his right-hand man, Joseph is doing what Joseph does. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that Joseph doesn't say, oh, at last, I can finally kick my feet up. I have all of these resources, I have all these people. All i got to do is summon them and tell them what to do. They'll go do it. I can just hang out here, and I can let everyone else do all the work. It's not what he does, is it? No, we're told in verse 46 that he went out from the presence of Pharaoh, went out through all of the land of Egypt. He's, he's laboring day in and day night, day in and day out for the glory of God. And then verse 47 During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, uh, just like Joseph said it would. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt. He put the food in the cities. He put in every city from the fields around it. Joseph stored up grain. We're told in verse 49 that it couldn't even be measured. And then in verse 50, before the year of famine came, two sons were born. And notice how Moses reiterates these sons are born to Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Joseph called the firstborn Manasseh. And of course, there's a, there's a reason he's calling him Manasseh. We're told that Joseph said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Let's, let's stop there for a moment because um, sometimes commentaries will puzzle over this. There is some things here being said that's a little bit puzzling. 
Um, God has made me forget all my hardship. I think we can understand that, I think, easily enough. Because what has the last 13 years been like for Joseph? He's 30 years old when he's put at the right hand, when when he's at the right hand of Pharaoh, made prime minister of Egypt, as he's sometimes called. He's 17 whenever he is sold into slavery. So almost for the second half of his life up to this point, what has it been like? It's been awful. A hardship is actually a, a really, um, that's one way of putting it. Um, God has made me forget all my hardship. That isn't the part that gives people trouble. The second part, and, and all my father's house. What has Joseph done? Is he forgetting about Abraham? Is he forgetting about the covenant? Is he forgetting about all the, pro- the, the promises of Abraham? I think to that we must say no, because we know, as many of us know the rest of the story. If you've read the rest of the story, and we must say no. But even if you don't know the rest of the story, look how faithful Joseph is carrying and conducting himself here. And besides that, notice what he says. He says, God has made me forget. In other words, it is the Lord who is behind this forgetting. Now, would the Lord cause him to forget the covenant that God has made with Abraham and with his prosperity? The answer is no. What are we to make of this then? I'll tell you what I think it is. I think it's the language of pain. When you have experienced so much pain, and, and, and the Lord has brought you through it. He has shown you each step of the way that he is with you, each step of the way as you go through it, to where finally as you come out the other side, you say, wow, the Lord has just made me forget that in the sense that it was awful. But God has been with me, and he has delivered me. And what he has done with me through this is so good that he has just made me forget it. Jesus has a, he says a similar thing this way. He says in John 16 and verse 21, he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. I think it's the language of pain. In verse 52, the name of the second, he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. What an amazing thing. You know, could Joseph ever have seen this happening? God has been lining it up, and he's been working on it for a long time. But could Joseph have really have ever seen this happening? Now, in verse 53, the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, just like Joseph said it would. Then the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. That's amazing. What he says to you, do. We'll come back to that here in a moment. Then the famine spread over the over all the land, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth, verse 57, 
came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, what I want to show in this, what, what is so amazing, and I've been alluding to it as we've gone along each step of the way, is how this so amazingly points to Christ. Are you seeing the connections as I go through this? I mean, it's just so amazing how we might say this foreshadows Jesus, doesn't it? In so many ways. If we go back to verse 41, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. When I read that verse, I think of Psalm 2 and verse 6. And I will tell you, when I looked in the bulletin this morning, I was surprised that our scripture memory verse was verse 41. That was the verse I sent to Donald. But in my mind, I'm like, oh, we're going to go to Psalm 2.6. And I don't know. I, somehow in my mind, I thought that we would have Psalm 2.6 written down. But Donald would have to know that in order to have it put in the bulletin. And I thought that was the verse that I gave. And when I was looking down, I actually was surprised. What's verse 41 doing in there? Well, Rick, that's the verse you gave him. But what is the connection with verse 41 in Psalm 2 and verse 6? Well, notice in verse 41, Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. In Psalm 2 and verse 6, the Lord says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I want to remind you here that God uses the instrumentality of Pharaoh to set Joseph in charge. But Pharaoh's not really the one setting Joseph in charge. For Romans 13, 1 through 7, all authority is instituted by God. And we, we, we would know that just from Romans 7, Romans 13 rather, but we've seen what God has been doing all this step of the way. How is God going to get uh, Joseph into the presence of Pharaoh while well, he's cupbearer and baker? But how is Joseph going to get before the cupbearer and the baker? Well, he's going to have to use this thing with uh, Potiphar's wife to get Joseph thrown in jail. Well, how is he going to get Joseph in front of Potiphar's wife while well, he's going to have to be thrown in the pit and sold off to slavery? Well, how is he going to be thrown in the pit and sold off to slavery? Well, his dad's going to have to do this really numbskull thing of sending Joseph out to his brothers. And the, you see how it all works. And this makes your head spin. This is how God's been moving the chessboard all along so that Joseph would be right here. It's amazing. It's absolutely breathtaking. And as I've already said, Joseph really, in a sense, receives a resurrection out of the pit and an ascension to the right hand of Pharaoh, but Christ actually, not in a sense, but literally, is raised from the tomb to life and then ascends to the right hand of the Father, doesn't he? It's absolutely amazing. Before I move on, a point of application, here we powerfully see the way of the Christian life. The way of the Christian life is a way of humble service, isn't it? I mean, if we're walking around like know-it-alls with our chest out, like we know everything and everyone around us doesn't, we are walking out of step with our Savior, aren't we? There's just no room in the Christian life for that kind of attitude, is there? 
No, the Christian life, Joseph is showing us, and Jesus shows us even more profoundly, what is the Christian life? Philippians chapter 2, read Philippians 2, 5 to 10 this afternoon, if you get a second, where I'll just loosely paraphrase it for you. In in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, and following, verse 6 and following, uh, the Apostle Paul says that Christ, though He was in the form of God, did not account equality with God something to be grasped. But He humbled Himself and took on the form of a servant, took on the form of, of a likeness of flesh. And He humbled Himself even to the point of death. And therefore God has exalted Him and exalted His name above every name so that Every knee shall bow to Christ Jesus. That would be Philippians 2.10. Now look at our text. Verse 43, Joseph is given the motorcade. And what are they calling out to Joseph? What are they calling out? Bow the knee. Isn't that amazing? There's more. There's, a, there's actually a lot more. Look at verse 46. Joseph was 30, old, 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh. was Jesus when he entered and embarked into his earthly ministry. Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all of the land of Egypt. What is Jesus doing? He goes through all the land, doesn't he? So that he might what? Save the world. What is Joseph doing? He's laboring to save the... Is he laboring to save Egypt? He's laboring to save the world. Now, of course, Joseph is just a foreshadow of Christ, but he's laboring to save the world from starvation. That's all that Joseph would be able to do. But Jesus... Jesus labors to save us from something Joseph could never save us from. Something that's much worse than starvation. Save us from sin. See, that's our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is not health coverage. Our biggest problem is not uh, clothes on our back or food in our bellies. Our biggest problem is our sin problem. That's our biggest problem. And just as Joseph is being faithful to his father, running all around, being faithful to God, running all around, seeing that he carries out his duties, Christ Jesus, in the same way, wandered all over Palestine, up and down, they could hardly keep up with him. No, he didn't, he didn't dictate that to anyone else. He didn't sit in heaven and say, here, send this guy, send that guy, send this guy, send Jesus came and did it himself, didn't he? So that he could do what? So he could offer us the salvation that he's offered us. Isn't that amazing? Look at verse, um, I think it's 55. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you do. I can't read that verse without thinking of something that Moses said in Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15, which is this. After me will come a prophet like me, and to him you shall listen. 
And that, that word is picked up in the New Testament over and over again, repeatedly. Who is this prophet? This prophet is the Mashiach. He is the Christos. He is the anointed one. He is Christ Jesus. Whatever he says, do. You notice, Joseph is functioning here in many ways like a prophet, isn't he? And he's functioning many ways um, as a king. And I don't know if we're to, I don't want to press this too far. I just want to, I want to, I want to, I'm going to touch this very cautiously. But he's married to a priest, his daughter. Again, I'll be very cautious with that one. I don't want to force the text, but definitely a kingly role here. Definitely a prophetic role here. You follow me? It's like Christ. If you continue here in verse 56, when famine had spread all over the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians for famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Um, that makes us think of uh, Isaiah 55, verse 1, where the Lord said, and, and notice here that the Egyptians are coming and they, they actually have to, when they come, they actually have to buy uh, this, this grain. The grain is sold to them. But along those lines, listen to Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, no money, he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. How do we receive Christ Jesus? Do we save up for him? Is there a task that we have to perform? and perform it well enough that we might have him? No. We come and we buy without money. How do we buy without money? We trust. We turn from our wicked ways. We turn from our wicked ways and we trust. But even as we turn from our wicked ways and we trust, we do so not in our own strength. We do so in the strength that he provides. We come and we buy without money. Isn't that amazing? And lastly, look at verse 57. All of the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all, over all the earth. Joseph became famous, not just in Egypt, but around the whole known world at that time. Joseph was the guy to get bread from. And listen to Jesus in John 12 and verse 32. He says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Isn't that amazing? Now, what do we do with this? Well, in each step of this, what are we getting? We're seeing Joseph who God has brought up the sanctification ladder to a great degree. Joseph is a sinner, just like the rest of us. But here we see a sinner walking very closely uh, with the Lord through all of this, and we see the Lord's devices. We see the Lord's design. We see the Lord operating in such a way that it's pointing us to Christ Jesus. And they're giving us a glimpse this is really what preaching is all about, by the way. Preaching is not about 
giving you information to store up in your craniums, giving you like new facts or even new connections or showing you how verse 41 and, and, and Psalm 2 and verse 6 are all connected. If that's all preaching does, and if that's all I do this morning, then I'm failing every single one of you and I'm failing everyone who will listen to this online. No. The design of preaching is to present Christ and to present him in his fullness to the best that we are able to do. Would you agree with me that Joseph is really a beautiful guy, isn't he? Wouldn't all of you like to be like Joseph? There's such a beauty about him. There's such a magnetism about him. There is such a, there's, there's just such a draw. You know, you find yourself drawn to Joseph. He'd be a great guy to work with, a great guy to work for. He'd be a great guy to be around. Someone you could go to with your problems and say, man, that's this issue. Because the wisdom of God is in him. But, but listen, loved ones, he is only pointing us to Christ. Who is so much greater than Joseph. At the end of the day, Joseph needs Jesus just as bad as you and I do. Jesus is lovely. He's far lovelier than Joseph is. As lovely as Joseph is. He's far lovelier. He's far more majestic. He is not just at the right hand of Pharaoh, but he's at the right hand of God the Father. He's not in just possession of the, of the authority that's derivative the authority, Joseph's authority is actually derivative of Pharaoh's. Christ's authority is the authority of God. Joseph saves people from hunger. Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. Isn't he lovely? Isn't he beautiful? Have your eyes been opened to see him in his beauty and in his splendor and in his august majesty? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord. We thank you for such a beautiful Savior as we have in Christ Jesus. We thank you, O oh Lord, that we see, even though if it's so little, we see a little bit of your glory, a little bit of your beauty, a little bit of your majesty, a little bit of your splendor, and, oh, Father, we pray that as we meditate upon these things, Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to enable us to see more and more, that you would enable us to perceive with greater detail, that you would enable us to understand all the better, not that we could be puffed up with knowledge, but that we could be like, like Joseph here, walking closer and closer with you, reflecting more and more of your glory and your light and your beauty. That, Father, as we go forth from here this morning, as we go throughout the, uh, the, the community, 
that, Father, we would each be reflectors of your glory, reflectors of the beauty of Jesus, reflectors of the grace of Jesus, reflectors of the majesty of Jesus, reflectors of his splendor of Jesus. Oh, Father, lastly, we pray that, Lord, you would make, you would make Jesus the treasure of each of our hearts, that we would treasure him like we, like we focused last week, that we would treasure him as he should be treasured by us. So, Father, draw us closer, we pray. As we see these, these magnificent things that you have done that pre-shadow and foreshadow your Son, draw us, O oh Father. Draw us to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.